The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly God, Holy Father, uh, you are so gracious and kind and loving to your children. We thank you that we can uh, worship you every Sunday in the beauty of holiness and really throughout the week as we say our prayers and as we meet with you through the, the reading of Scripture, through the praying of prayers, and through the fellowship of our community. So, dear Lord, thank you that you're an accessible God, uh, made accessible through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who... Um, who tore into the curtain of separation between us and your holiness. And through him, the great high priest, we're able to go right to the heart of the Father every time we worship. So thank you, dear Lord, for providing us a way back to you. Thank you for the Eucharist, which we'll talk more about today. And thank you for the Anglican expression of faith that we all enjoy. Help us to appreciate it more deeply. And we just ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm not up next week, Tyler is, and he'll be talking more about the theology of the church, um, but if there are any lingering questions, you're welcome to text me at 4650240. I did get a few questions from last week, they were very interesting, and thought maybe we'd start out with some of those. Um, kind of uh, ancillary questions, not quite uh, to the point, but interesting questions that everyone might have. And if you're new to our church, you probably have some of these questions. But first of all, an overview of where we went last week, okay? Uh, things that I love about Anglicanism. Um, one thing is that, that if you tell a secret, if I tell Alex a secret, and, and the secret makes it around the room, perhaps you've done this in, in uh, grade school, and then it gets back to my lovely wife, Leslie, and she tells me what the secret was, what's going to happen? It's different. It's profoundly changed as it's handed from person to person to person. And so when I was in the market for the appropriate expression of the faith that I really felt like was, was biblical and apostolic and, and, and Catholic in nature, I thought, let's go back to the source. Let's go back to the origins of the church, back to the apostles, so that we get the pure secret, uh, the actual teachings of the early church. So I went back to the first three centuries and that's when Anglicanism really spoke to me. And as we said last night, last week, we have one holy Catholic, Catholic meaning universal church. It's also apostolic. It goes back to the early days, the secret being told for the first few times. And we as a church chose to keep many of the traditions that were not outside of the Bible. So um, we keep vestments, we keep sacraments, uh, a lot of things that other churches said no. When we reformed, we kept those things around. So you'll see a lot of things that seem to be Roman Catholic, but our theology is very Protestant. Uh, what we believe is very much like what the Presbyterians believe, very similar to the Baptists and the Methodists and other churches. We believe that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that doesn't have to be mediated through the church. The church is helpful in that. The church helps to bind people together in fellowship, helps to communicate grace through preaching, through the sacraments, but you can have a personal relationship that's not dependent on the church. So we're Catholic in some ways, and we're Protestant in our beliefs. Um, we also treasure vertical worship, right? So uh, some churches call their worship service, services worship experiences, 
It's about sitting back and having uh, an entertaining experience on a Sunday morning. You get your cafe latte, grande, whatever it may be, and you sit back and you watch somebody else participate in worship. We don't do that. We're participants, and we are looking at God on Sunday morning. So everything's very vertical. Um, We're also liturgical, and remember that word means the work of the people. And so we get actively involved in our worship on Sunday mornings. So these are just some of the things that I loved about Anglicanism that drew a Methodist heart uh, to the uh, Church of England, to Anglicanism. Remember, we're a church that has 77.9 million people worldwide. So there's this huge umbrella that we're all connected to uh, across the world. Some of the questions from last week were these. Scripture says we're to call no one father, so why do we call priests father sometimes? And just as a side note to this, you don't need to call me father. You can call me Trip. If you grew up in a tradition that's very formal with the way that you talk to your priests or your clergy, you may call me father. Uh, I don't like to be called preacher. Um, and, and I don't really like to be called pastor as much. Those are, are defined roles of a clergy, but they don't express really what priests do. So you can call me Trip. Uh, or call me Father Tripp, whatever you'd like to call me, but just Tripp is fine. Um, why place the baptismal font in the entryway of the church? And you can see that we moved it over there. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, why do Christians observe the Sabbath on su- uh, Sunday rather than Saturday, the Jewish observance? And then someone said, I love the Word of God, but why is communion so important? Um, and that person, you know, was, was struggling with the place of communion in the life of the church. So let's attack those real quickly. Uh, first of all, the, word, the idea of father, calling somebody a spiritual father. It has to do with relationships. And if you um, have been to a lot of Baptist churches and other churches, they'll call somebody Sister Susan or Brother Rick. And all those are relational terms because we are the family of God, right? And so uh, Elisha... Um, said, my father, my father, to Elijah as he's caught up in the whirlwind in heaven. And so the idea was that he wasn't truly uh, the son of Elijah. What he was is experiencing or expressing a relational value. Elijah had been the mentor or teacher of Elisha. And 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says, Mark, my son. He's talking about to John Mark there. And John Mark was not his son, but he's uh, expressing a relational characteristic between an older uh, teacher and a younger son uh, in the faith, somebody growing up in the faith. Um, Another thing is 1 Corinthians 4.14. Paul says this, said, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. In other words, he's given instructional words to the church, but to admonish you as my beloved, what? Children, a relational value of Paul the elder to his precious congregation. Uh, For uh, though you have countless guides in Christ, people who are instructing you in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so he's expressing that that relational value. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Hebrews... um, I mean, sorry, turn to Matthew 23, 6 to 7. Matthew 23, 6 to 7. 
This is where that question comes from. Uh, why do we call people father when it says in the Bible not to call people father? Okay? If you turn to Matthew chapter 23, you'll see an ongoing uh, conversation Jesus uh, to and about the scribes and the Pharisees. It's called the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. So you know Jesus is out to get them. He's, he's, he's really criticizing them for, for bad motivations, bad religious motivations. And he goes into this. You see, all these are red-letter words of Jesus. So these, this, this is him speaking. He said this about uh, the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. And then he goes on. For they preach but do not practice. All right, so we got some people who are practicing hypocrisy, right? Um, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, upon the people's shoulders. So, so they're giving out a, a, a brand of, of religion called legalism that was heavily bound upon the, the recipient. It was crushing in its weight because nobody can live up to the law. That's why Jesus came, to bring us grace and to fulfill the law for us. In verse 5, it says, they do all these deeds, why? To be seen by others. So you got a bunch of hypocrites, full of pride, full of vanity. They're expressing a religion that God would never approve of. And then it goes on to talk about them. It says in verse 7, they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by others. They love being called teacher. So, so they like to lord it over them. They've been to seminary, for goodness sake. <laughs> they can tell you what to do. They love to be called rabbi. But in verse 8, he says, but you're not to be called rabbi. Now, does that mean you're never to call anybody rabbi? I mean, a strict, literal reading of that word might lead you to that assumption. In verse 10, he says, neither are we to call people instructors, for you have one instructor, and that is Christ Jesus. Okay? But then he says, whoever humbles himself well, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And verse 9 is the verse that she, th this person was thinking about. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Of course, if you read it in its context, and not literally, then you understand what he's talking about. Haughty, prideful, arrogant people who are hypocrites, who are looking down upon other people. So they were supplanting the place of the Father in heaven. We're never to do that. So uh, you can call somebody Father without um, doing a disservice to, um, to what we read in um, Matthew 23, 6 to 7. Uh, another question from last week, the placement of the font. If you will turn to Hebrews 10, 19. Hebrews 10, 19. So we move the font, as you can see, right into the entryway of the church. And Hebrews 10, 19 uh, talks about the full assurance of faith. How do you come into worship and know that, that God loves you and accepts you? How do you have confidence in your worship? Well, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that it's open to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full confidence of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he's saying when you come into worship, you can't come in your own righteousness. You, you can't come into the throne room of God unless somebody intercedes for you and mediates between you and God. That's why he calls Jesus the great high priest. He's a mediator between us and God. Jesus tore the curtain in two through his death that separated us from the Father. That's why we can have confidence through the great high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies, to come into a sacred space and meet with God on Sunday morning. And he says that we must have our consciences sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. And then he says, washed with pure water uh, in verse 22. So what we want to do is remind ourselves when we come into the church through the waters of baptism, we enter into the body of Christ. Not in our own righteousness, but being washed in the blood of the Lamb, sprinkled clean in the person of Jesus. So that's our confidence. Um, one uh, liturgical theologian, Ken Collins, uh, once related it to, uh, to this. He said, in the Roman house, remember the early church met in households, right? So you'd be in a home. And you might have a, a narthex or a foyer in the front of your home, and in it would be a place of bathing so that you could wash before you came into the house. You'd wash all the dirt and the grime off. Well, here's what he says. He said the household's water source was in the atrium just inside the front door, kind of where our baptismal font is. When early Christians converted a house to a church, that water source became the place where baptisms could take place if it wasn't possible to baptize outdoors. So you'd normally baptize outdoors, but some people uh, baptized, started baptizing indoors. And it says, even though the position of the baptistry was determined by the existing architecture of the house, it took on a symbolic meaning because baptism is the entrance to the Christian life. We have access to God only because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and we've received the outpouring of God's spirit in baptism. Sounds like Hebrews 10, 9, doesn't it? See, that's why it's there. And, and what I do is remind myself that I'm not worthy, but I'll take my two forefingers and my thumb and I'll dip it in the water on Sunday morning and I'll make the sign of Christ's blood, the cross, upon my, my body. And I'll remind myself that I'm given confidence through his body, through his sacrifice, through his blood. Um, you see why we might put it there? Okay. Makes good sense, doesn't it? Hebrews 10.9. Okay. And also it goes back to, uh, to ancient history. Uh, the Jews, who we borrowed a lot of our worship practices from, uh, had the mikvah. And the mikvah, that mikvah right there is a ritual bathing place, and that is outside the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's a great chance that Jesus was in that mikvah, cleansing himself through prayer and the washing of water before he went into the temple to worship his father in the temple. And so uh, that was right outside. You cleansed before coming into the presence of God. So that's the tradition. Okay, any questions about that? All right, that's just, you know, we've done some worship changes, but they're all meaningful, okay? Um, one of the things that we do is we uh, think that our architecture speaks uh, some, some uh, powerful messages to our congregation as well. And uh, in most churches, you'll see something like that. 
uh, in the top of the church, you'll have ribbed structures, okay? And uh, where you're sitting right now is not the sanctuary. Other Protestants call this the sanctuary, but it's really the nave, okay? And that word nave comes from the old Latin word from which we get navy or seafaring or seagoing. And if you'll look at the top of most churches, even this one to some degree, you'll see what looks like the ribs of a ship, the underbelly of a ship. And if you'll remember, one of the first acts of salvation that God did was Genesis 7, 16, when God sealed his creatures up in the ark with Noah, and he sealed them in salvation. He protected them from the buffeting waves that were all around them. And so the idea of the church being a ship is that we are protected from the, the world, the flesh, and the devil through the salvation of Jesus who, who uh, seals us up in protective grace on Sunday morning. So that's the nave, novice, ship. And many uh, of the churches you see will have a ship as its symbol. Duke University Divinity School has a ship as its symbol. Jesus, of course, did many miracles near and around water. And so we're in the nave right now. Uh, sanctuary, of course, is uh, something that goes back to the tent of meeting. Uh, remember um, when they would meet with God in the wilderness as they were wandering all those years? And they would go into a place where God's presence dwelt. It was called the, 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 the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. It was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And so for us... Because we celebrate communion up here at the altar, we call this the sanctuary because that's where we meet with God. Not in a tent of meeting or in the Holy of Holies as, is, as in the temple in Jerusalem, but we meet with God here at the altar. So if you want to say the sanctuary is, is up here, okay? For most Anglicans and Episcopalians, that's what we term it. And there's a good outline of what the church kind of looks like, Okay. Even the architecture speaks to us the power of the gospel. If you'll notice, uh, you have a narthex, which is the gathering place up there past the, the uh, baptismal font. Then if you uh, look, uh, there's the nave where you're sitting, and then there's the crossing, and there's the altar. And behind the altar, there's oftentimes a place called the apse, and that would be basically where the music team is on a Sunday morning. And if you'll notice, the whole thing is in the shape of a cross. If you look up in the architecture of this church, what do you see? You see a cross, right? It, it's not as pronounced as it might be in some churches, but this is a transept to my right. This is a transept to my left. There's the narthex, and there's the altar in the sanctuary. So when we come into worship, we're reminded that the cross of Christ is the, the object of our salvation. So that's powerful stuff. We have a cruciform church. Um, now, why Sunday Sabbath? Well, that, this takes a little bit of digging. But if you'll remember, the ancient Jews were commanded in Deuteronomy 5 to observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Uh, and it was uh, in replication of God's creation, right? So six days you shall labor and do all your work, just like God did in the beginning of time. But in verse 14, it says, On the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So here's how it worked. Six days God worked, but creation wasn't finished until he rested, right? 
So rest is a natural part of the rhythms of life. And when we rest in the Lord, we're participating in a reflection of his glory in the beginning of time. And so um, the Jews classically rested on the seventh day, which is Saturday, okay? Now, what happened with the new covenant is Jesus came and fulfilled the ceremonial laws and the civil laws for us. The moral laws are still in place for all time because they reflect the character and nature of God. But the civil and ceremonial laws were things like you can eat shellfish now. You can have a, 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 a barbecued pork sandwich. I mean, I love it. I love being a Christian. I don't want to go backwards. I don't want to do that. And Matthew five seventeen it says, I've come not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled it for us. That vision of all the unclean animals coming down from heaven that Peter had, and God says, rise, take up and eat. All that's okay for you now. So Jesus fulfilled that. We still need to have a Sabbath because it's part of the, the glory of God. It's good for humanity. But even in Colossians 2.16, it says, let no one now, because the law's been fulfilled, pass judgment on you in questioning you about food and drink, ceremonial laws fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, or with regard to festivals or the new moon or, or your Sabbath, when you take a Sabbath. So it's no longer mandatory that you take it on Saturday. What also happened in the early church is towards the latter part of the first century, the Jewish non-believers in the Messiah and the Jewish believers in the Messiah began to be at odds with one another. And certain... Um, synagogues began kicking Christians, believer, believing Jews, out of the synagogues. And so rather than going to worship on Saturday, uh, they were kind of focused on Sunday worship, which is the day of the resurrection of Jesus, on the eighth day. Okay, So God inaugurated a new creation through Jesus. It'll find its culmination when he comes again, but we're living in the eighth day now. So the Sabbath for Christians was moved from the seventh day Jesus rested in the grave, remember, on the seventh day. He rose again in victory over sin and death on the eighth day, on the resurrection day. So classically, Christians began to keep their worship and their Sabbath on the day of the resurrection. Any questions about that? So the law has been fulfilled. Okay, the other question was, um, why is the Eucharist important? And I want to just call to your, your, um, your uh, attention when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me at communion, okay, when he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, on the night before he died for us, that word remembrance or anamnesis is a power-packed word. We do not have an English equivalent to that word, okay? In fact, um, in John 14, 26, it says, but when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom the Father will send in my name, this is Jesus talking, he will teach you all things and bring to your anamnesis, to your remembrance, all that I've said to you. All right, so they, they had the word Jesus with them. Um, they, they, they had the law and the prophets that spoke about Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is that when the Holy Spirit comes, it will enact or uh, activate scripture in a way that you've never been able to be in touch with scripture before. If you've uh, ever read a scripture passage one year 
and then you prayed for the Holy Spirit to give you enlightenment the next year, you might see something you've never seen before. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring anamnesis, a remembrance that passes human ability back to you to relive and reactivate the stories of Scripture. In the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes at communion, he reactivates or, re, or causes us to relive Jesus' night before he died for us. Blaise Pascal, one of the inventors of the modern mechanical calculator, brilliant French mathematician, says that anamnesis means to relive or reactivate or make real again. So at communion, we're not just doing a, um, a, a, a sermon uh, prop. This isn't just to say, okay, we've preached on the cross, now let's remember it through some bread and wine. What we're saying is we're making the meal, the Last Supper, real again. So we're going back in time to be with the early disciples at that supper where Jesus blessed that cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. We're at that supper when he broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance and anamnesis of me. Make it real again. Bring you to that moment where I gave my life for you. Um, we also look forward to what in Revelation 19 will say, uh, that day when we will have a banquet in heaven with Jesus. It's called the, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And everybody's shouting and joyful. And, and in Revelation 19, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Hallelujah. So we're looking forward to be with Jesus in heaven. We're looking back to when we were with him uh, with the disciples in the, in the day he instituted the Lord's Supper. John Breck, in a book called Hermeneutics, said that the biblical understanding of anamnesis is more than a simple recalling of past events. Anamnesis signifies reactualization, a reliving of the event in the community of faith. So to answer that person's question, um, anamnesis brings us back into that, that place with Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and it helps us to, to commune with him. So it goes beyond just, just words. It helps us to relive his sacrifice for us. Any questions on that? Yes. Good question. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, you got Anglicans that run the gamut. Uh, you got some Anglo-Catholics that I know that, that probably tend more towards transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine uh, of the, the very substance and reality of bread and wine being, being um, changed in some substantial way by the mystery of the, uh, of the, the sacrament. Um, most Anglicans believe that, well, there's not transubstantiation, it's still bread and wine, but there's a powerful mystery going on here that passes our words, that passes understanding. And, um, and we, we say that really for a few reasons. Jesus in John 6 has a whole passage where he talks about the bread, I am the bread of life. We're going to do a series on the great I am statements of Jesus coming up after this series. Uh, but this, that's one of the great I am statements. I am the bread of life. And he said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, depending on what scholar you talk to, some will say what he's talking about is, is communion through faith with him. 
that, that when we walk with him, and, and we're, we're like ingesting him, his life into our life. Other scholars will say this clearly points to the Eucharist, to Holy Communion. I think it probably points to both. To be saved is to walk with Jesus in a saving relationship through faith in, in a way that can be described as ingesting Jesus, ingesting his forgiveness, ingesting his life into our souls. But it's made real at the Eucharist where anamnesis takes place. So it means to make that ingesting real for us. So I, I really think that John was, was meaning this in two different ways. And in fact, Jesus says it point blank. So he who eats me, he will also live because of me. And of course, the Jews that were there that day, they were so grossed out by that, remember? That many of them walked away. And Jesus said to his own disciples, he said, do you all want to go too? And, uh, and Peter said, to whom should we go, Lord? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. There's nobody else to go to. I, I love it. But the fourfold action of the Eucharist took the bread. He gave thanks or blessed it. He broke it and he gave it. Guess what? That's not only the way he instituted the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, but if you'll turn to Luke 24, we see that being one of the first actions of the resurrected Lord. Turn to Luke 24, if you will. This is the story of some disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And uh, turn to verse 19. Remember, Jesus is dead at this point. He's kaput. He's in the grave. The whole uh, Jesus movement is, is now over with. And this strange character comes alongside these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he asked this question in verse 17. What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk together? And what they were discussing at Jesus' death. And it says, and they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who, do, who does... Uh-oh. Oh, I'm... <laughs> who, who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus, unrecognizable by these people, okay, these two disciples, Jesus says, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and it goes on to describe that they, he was crucified. But now look at what happens. Uh, Jesus begins to unpack the word to them, to show them all the places that he was prophesied through the prophets. So he we have the liturgy of the word, just like we do on Sunday mornings. And um, then, after the liturgy of the word, he's invited to stay the night with them, to, have, to break bread with them. And uh, in verse 26, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them. When he was at the table, what did he do? Fourfold action of the Eucharist. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Same thing he did on the night before he died for us. What happened after that? Verse 31, their eyes were opened. This is anamnesis. This is, this is the event happening again for them. And they recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And so the same thing can happen with us on Sunday morning as we hear the word of God, as we receive the sacrament of God, and, uh, and then he vanished from their midst, and they began to chat with one another in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? 
So Jesus set apart word and sacrament as a way of meeting with Jesus on Sunday mornings, okay? Any questions about that? That's how important the Eucharist is. In the early church, of course, we talked about Justin Martyr last week, and the early church's pattern was to take it on Sunday mornings. Um, in fact, Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, uh, whoever, therefore, eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He doesn't say it's just bread and just wine, but in a real mysterious way, this is a living of the body and blood offered for us. And he said, if you're going to come to communion, examine yourself first of all. Um, There's something in the prayer book called the exhortation. We're going to do the exhortation on the first Sunday of Lent this year. I've never done it before. But it's really a, a calling the people of God to a holy Lent and to examine their hearts before they take the Holy Eucharist. It's a very powerful thing. Yes, you had a question. That's right. That's a good point. That's right. We treat it reverently. Some mystery has gone on here. If it wasn't a mystery, Paul wouldn't say, listen, people are dying. They're getting sick because they're, they're coming to the Lord's mysterious feast in an unworthy manner. They hadn't prepared themselves beforehand. So while it doesn't somehow magically become body and blood, uh, remember the, the, uh, the line, haces corpus meum. This is my body. Um, that would be said by the priests uh, in private up front. And, uh, and the peasants who may, may or may not have known Latin would hear that in the distance. Hakes corpus meum, hakes corpus meum. This is my body. And they didn't know what in the world that was happening. And so uh, that's where the word hocus pocus comes from. <laughs> hakes corpus meum. Uh, hocus pocus. They knew something magical was happening up there. Suddenly this bread's becoming body, this, this wine's becoming blood, and, and I heard the priest invoke hocus pocus up there. So it must be. Yes. That's a good starting place. Um, that, that's a good starting way to understand it. Um, what, the way it's presented is even a thousand times more powerful because this, this is a mystery that, that Paul says, man, you better treat this um, with respect and you better prepare yourself. This is a, is a powerful mystery that's going on here. So, yeah, it, it, it's more than just signifying. Uh, Baptist uh, oftentimes, you know, will, will see it as a memorial meal something that happened 2,000 years ago, we see the Eucharist as anamnesis, bringing us back to the moment when it was instituted by the Lord himself. Okay? So uh, anyway, um, we'll try and run through the rest of this very quickly. I just want to highlight some of the points of the Holy Eucharist. One is there's an opening acclamation, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's seasonal. Um, When we have Easter season, we'll go, Alleluia, Christ is risen. 
And when we go into Lent here in a few weeks at Ash Wednesday, we will do bless the Lord who forgives us all our sins. So we're looking at self-examination. Uh, uh, we're looking at introspection during Lent. We're looking at our sins, and then we're looking towards the cross and the resurrection as God dealt with our sins. So that's the way we'll start in just a few weeks. It changes. And I love this. This is the colic for purity. It goes back to the 11th century. It would be said by priests back in the vesting sacristy before they came out for worship in order for their hearts to be prepared. Um, but you'll notice um, that now we say it together to prepare our hearts. Uh, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, from you no secrets are hid. I have to think that that was inspired by uh, David. Remember in Psalm 51, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's had one of his good friends, a good fighting buddy, Uriah the Hittite, her husband killed in battle. So he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, and he pours out his heart to God in Psalm 51. He, you know, God, I have no secrets before you. And I beg that you'll cleanse my thoughts and my hearts. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, David says, because then I'm ruined. And so we pray the same sort of thing, because we come in as sinners. We want to have our conscience purified by Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, we come into that, and then we stand up for praise. And of course, if we're doing the Gloria, then we go glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. The same words that were inspired uh, by the angels. Remember in Luke 2.13, the angels are announcing to the shepherds that the Messiah has come, salvation has come to God's people, and they burst out in song. It says, suddenly there was an with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so we stand for praise at the beginning of our service because salvation has come to our house. Um, the collect of the day, basically a collect is just an English word for a, a prayer that collects the thoughts of the day. And this is one of my favorites uh, blessed Lord who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us to hear them, read them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. I love that. I love that. So if you love good prayers, the, the prayer book is full of them. Every collect of the day, usually it goes along with the scripture for the day. So it will collect the thoughts of the scriptures for that day. The scriptures we have are Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Gospel. Uh, the good thing about this is it's done in a cycle. We got year A, year B, year C. Lectionary is what we call it. And so that keeps the preacher and the church talking about the full uh, salvation of God. Not just the things that we would like to talk about, but we got to address the difficult passages as well as the e easy ones. So the spectrum of salvation is spread out over three years. So that what we read today won't be read this time next year because we're in year C, we'll be back to year A. And so it, it works us through the scriptures in such a way. Um, typically, we'll stand to honor the words of Jesus at the gospel. Some of you have asked me why we bring that, that book down. Well, these are the words of Jesus. These are the red-letter words of Jesus. I don't, I'm not a big proponent of a canon within a canon or authority within authority, but I am a big proponent on, in honoring my Lord and Master. And if these are his words, I want to stand and honor him in that way. So that's why we, we stand for the gospel. Not that it's more authoritative uh, than the rest of Scripture. 
Um, some would argue that, but, but I, I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> so uh, typically we'll have a sermon after that. And Paul said in Romans 10, How will they call on him in whom they have not, have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Aren't these some beautiful feet? I, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, in powerful preaching with the Spirit, as Corey delivered this morning, uh, our hearts, the sinner's heart is convicted by our sin, and, and then we're pointed towards the way of salvation, towards the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the sermon must convict us of sin and, and point us to salvation. And in John 16, it says the first work of the Holy Spirit when he comes will be to convict us, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment so that we may then fall upon the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And um, then after we have heard the word, we stand and affirm our faith, right? And uh, that's from the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., primary reason to get together was to, to discuss the person and nature of Jesus. And there was a group led by Arius, who was a bishop of Egypt, and uh, he taught that Jesus was subordinate to the, to the Father, and that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. Jesus was a created being who was underneath the Father. We believe that Jesus was there in the beginning of time in creation, that God spoke his word, and he spoke things into being through the word, who was Jesus. So we don't believe that. And so they came to argue about who Jesus really is. And so what you have on Sunday morning is that the uh, conclusion of that group that met together, those bishops, Catholic bishops from all over the world. So it makes explicit what we believe about Jesus, uh, makes explicit the redeeming work of God in the world. And if you'll remember, there's a guy named St. Nicholas who was Bishop of Myra, who was also at that meeting of bishops. And so Myra's in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He was there, and he got so angry at these heretics who were spouting off this kind of Arian heresy that he got up, walked over, and punched Arius in the mouth. <laughs> now, that's how strongly they believed in good theology back then. So next Christmas, when you celebrate Christmas... Deck the halls, no, try deck the heretic. <laughs> so uh, that's Santa Claus for you right there. Ta teach your kids that. Teach your grandkids that. Uh, of course, then we, uh, before we take communion, we want to do uh, the prayers of the people. And 1 Timothy uh, 2 uh, urges us, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications are made, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people, then for kings and all who are in high positions, we pray for who? The, the president, uh, the governor, uh, pray for people in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So you see how scriptural our worship service is. We're doing what, what we're commanded to do in the scriptures. So we do the prayers of the people, then we confess. Now this is important because uh, what does God say? God's word uh, says that if we confess our sins... He, meaning God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to come into the Holy of Holies, into the sanctuary, the presence of God, with a clean conscience. Same thing that Hebrews 10, 9 talked about, being sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb, being cleansed 
to come into his presence and meet with him. Okay, so before we come to communion, we hear the absolution. Uh, so we're absolved in the name of Jesus, and um, then we're able to take communion. But we also want to make sure you're good with your neighbor, and that's what the passing of the peace is all about. If you confessed your sins to God, that vertical relationship with the Father is restored, and then you want to find anybody in the church that you've offended or you have something against. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he said, if you have something against your brother, don't bring your gift to the altar yet. Leave your gift. Don't come and worship. You're not ready to worship yet. He said, first go and be reconciled to your neighbor, to the person with whom you have a, a grievance. Then come and offer your worship to God. That's what that's about. Passing of the peace is to, to at least symbolically say, I'm, I'm good with God. I've confessed my sins. Now I'm good with everybody else. I've made restitution with my neighbors. So um, in the Roman Catholic Church, they've believed, I'm not sure how strongly they hold to it anymore, that they have to re-sacrifice Jesus every week to atone for sins. We don't believe that. Hebrews 9 says the high priest uh, would have to, to shed blood every week, and we don't believe that. Verse 26, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what we celebrate on Sunday. And uh, I'll go ahead and, and wrap up here. But just two things. Once you've been forgiven, once you come into his presence, we sing a song with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, right? So the, the, uh, the barrier between heaven and earth is as thin as it could possibly be. We're worshiping with angels and archangels. And we burst out in song. Remember in Isaiah 6, 3, the angels are up there worshiping God with these words, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. So we take the angel's song upon our tongue in adoring and magnifying the Lord. And then we end that with, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus has come through his bread and his wine, his body and his blood to fulfill Psalm 118, which is Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Also, Matthew 21, 9, when they laid their palm fronds at the feet of Jesus and they welcomed him in as the Messiah of God. That's what we'll do on Palm Sunday. Um, so we welcome Jesus to come to our table as the Messiah of God. So I will end with that. Um, had a little bit more stuff, but if you have any questions, text me. I'll be glad to send it out to you. Come next week. Tyler's going to do theology for you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs>